0: Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. We all know the last four years in digital commerce have been earth shattering, transformative, and well, exhausting. Now, however, feels like a moment in time where it's not only possible, but urgent to take stock of the shifts of the past several years and reassess how to move forward in a way that works for both consumers and your bottom line. Accenture recently did a new version of their annual massive consumer research, this time across 13 countries, that really clarifies the shifts that are here to stay and the clarion call that creates to the C-suite to make sure to build a business that works for the long haul. Jared Zogby, Global Lead for Omnichannel Commerce at Accenture Song, joined Rob and me to explain what consumers are saying and why you can no longer hide from the new realities of digital commerce, or as we like to call it, commerce. So Jared, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We've really been looking forward to digging into this uh, this new commerce consumer research that you have.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, Peter. I'm I'm looking forward to it too. And I'm uh, quite excited about it myself, seeing that we, because, you know, we've been doing this for four years now. And uh, so we did it pre-COVID. We did it the first year of COVID, which we asked completely different questions. We were trying to figure out yeah, what's happening. That. And then last year was the first year of almost a baselining of the new world. And then getting to see it again this year, it's it's been <laughs> quite interesting to see the numbers and how they're coming out and the insights from it.
0: What a crazy set of years to be doing consumer <laughs> research yet, so this will be really fun to talk about. You know, the, can you tell us a bit more about the research that you did and, and who was involved?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, we've been doing this. This is our fourth year. It has evolved every year. There are some questions, especially things like brand recall and, and commerce environments, which we're going to talk about, um, that have been consistent. But a lot of this stuff changed because we saw such a dramatic change. Um, some of the things we've evolved this year was 13 countries Uh, this was the first year we added Indonesia and Mexico in or sorry not Mexico Brazil and Mexico was already in there Uh, so we got a bigger expansion so we can see how for example the U.S stacks up against other countries and then for those countries themselves if you're a global brand the uniqueness of each market because many of them changed very dramatically over the last two to three years so there's 13 countries 13,000 respondents so we had a thousand respondents per country And then we had 17 categories so some of the questions are more broader in nature but some of them were very specific because we want to understand the nuances between say for example grocery uh, versus clothing and and apparel versus beauty so that way we could pick up some of the nuances of how people use the, the various commerce channels uniquely for each category we wanted to understand the adoption rates we wanted to understand Effectively, how sticky and seamless commerce is becoming, uh, which we'll, we'll obviously get into. We wanted to understand brand recall because we really feel that, you know, if you go back four years ago, there was questions whether commerce was a transaction only channel or was it really brand building. And now everyone realize it is brand building, but we have the data now to show the significance of it. And then last, we really wanted to understand, you know, the the kind of How things are shifting around physical store adoption which we won't get into here but we were trying to track all of that in one study
2: first of all the studying the data is fantastic and uh i am selfishly because i'm in tech and because we're in like the good times we're over in tech moment Mm -hmm. um, where all the valuations are crashing down to earth and inflation is rising so like the cheap money isn't available and all that sort of stuff there was a a set of data in your report that for me just jumped off the page, which was all around the commerce is ubiquitous. And mm-hmm. in particular, you know, there's a narrative that all this cheap money for the last 10 years has made these delivery models, which are, you know, lost leading models. is the kind of maybe the, the optimistic way to say it, tenable. As soon as the cheap money goes away, you know, can this even be done? Uh, the data that you have on commerce being ubiquitous in different modes of shopping, I thought was like almost shocking like stark. So could you can you go into to that data and then like demographically in particular, what you learned from from this latest report?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, there's two things about that that I found most interesting. I, I love that you love that piece too because to me it was no one can hide anymore. So, you know, if you went back three, four years ago and you sat down with a division president, many of them would say, yeah, but, you know, online is a small part of my business. And they would use the term online because it meant Amazon shipped to home. And what we watched over the last two to three years with the adoption of things like curbside, last mile delivery with companies like Instacart. And what they did is it meant I can no longer hide. I might be selling frozen pizza. I might be selling dairy products. And pre COVID, I really didn't care about digital commerce. And now if someone can't find my product to do curbside or last mile delivery. I'm losing sales. And so that literally no one can treat digital commerce. And that's one of the reasons I use the phrase digital commerce and not online. Online is that outdated word, right? I'm buying online and fulfilling at my local store. So call it what you want. It's it is digital commerce. Uh, but that's the first thing is that no one can hide. And I think this is why it's become such a prevalent topic across the C-suite. But the some of the numbers, to give you an idea. So we were looking at this. We watched the numbers jump up about 10% from last year on click and collect or curbside. Um, the U.S., it's about 60% of people use curbside
2: now. Whoa, so, so 10%. And this is our, like COVID gave this a massive boost to begin with. And then it's up another 10% year over year after that jump.
1: Yeah, but to your point, and I think this is where it gets most interesting. If you look at the demographics, so we we looked at all the ages, right? So we're looking at Gen Z, Millennial, Gen X, Boomer, Silent, uh, and so if you think of that as like a trend, as you would expect, who uses that the most? Gen Z, eighty-one percent of Gen Z are using curbside for stuff. Seventy-six percent Millennials. So that group, and I, that's the big interesting thing to me is there's three big buckets: people under forty. Which is very insulting to me because I don't fall into that bucket. Okay, no, nobody here does. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. But we, we got to recognize they see the world differently. Then there's the the Gen X kind of as a next step up, which is 41 to 56, and then everybody after Gen X, the Boomers and Silent Generation, are like a third bucket. And so if you look at that, what you see is the under four, or 40 and under crowd have huge numbers. So. use curbsides, that's more than three quarters, and 72% use last mile delivery. So you're talking about three quarters of that population using one or the other. And yet when you get to the the Gen X, we see those numbers drop by almost 20% each. So they're down, and they're still big numbers. There's 60% on average for curbside, or yeah, curbside, and 47% for last mile delivery. So you're still having, on average, about half using one or the other. And then when you get past that group, it drops by another 20%, actually even 30% for last month delivery, where all of a sudden you're seeing that group who is 57 and older, only 36% are using curbside, and only 15% uses things like last month delivery. So we see these two big step changes: 40 and under, then that Gen X group, and then who comes after Gen X being the next step down.
2: Yeah, i have almost, I mean, there's a couple of things that are that are amazing about that to me, is I wouldn't have expected. Anywhere near that difference between, you know, 20s and 30 somethings and 40s and early 50 somethings. Um, I mean, but that is 20 points is huge.
1: Well, that that caught my attention, too. And I think it's really important to when you think about family dynamics, because you see things and as you would expect, baby in the house, 40 and under with kids, those are the highest numbers you see. They're looking for convenience. And let's be honest, it's something I've been talking to a lot of clients about is even though we've seen some kind of leveling off. When we get into the winter months and it's freezing outside and it's dark early and people have kids in car seats, they're not getting their kids out of car seats to go into a store if they don't have to. They're going to find whatever convenience they can. So we're going to see a bump as we get into those winter months for this kind of stuff. This was actually surveyed this summer. And so that's my expect is those numbers will jump up through the summer. And again, you'll start to build more habits, which is really what COVID did. It got people over the barrier for signing up for things, got them familiar with it. And it basically created adoption rates that there's almost like a, a switchback cost to go back to the old work.
2: I, I got to tell you on the car seat thing in the cold, my daughter is a half an inch and like three pounds away from being able to do the booster seat. And I have to stop myself from measuring her every week. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the, the car seat graduation is going to be a good day for that reason. Dad, um,
1: stop measuring me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I uh, mean, you know, my family runs short too. So that half inch is going to take a little bit. Um, yeah,
1: I hear you. But by the way, one note that really, this was most surprising to me. So the I agree with you. The, the fact that there was a big difference between under 40 and uh, over 40, because I would have thought the Gen X were closer to that. It's yeah. that here's the two big takeaways for me. One is this is your younger families. So when you're, if you're selling to larger baskets kind of thing, that's a big concern because that's, and you see it, the highest numbers, 40 and under with kids, the lowest numbers, over 40 without kids. So you kind of see like that convenience factor being a major driver in digital commerce adoption, as you would expect. What did surprise us is there was virtually no difference on income. In fact, the lowest income people were the, we did like low, medium and high. And we did this in each country, right? So it's a very nuanced thing, but it's very minimal. But the lowest income was actually the highest adopters of curbside. It was 62 versus 58 versus 61 so it was almost virtually you know no difference Uh, and the same thing for last mile delivery so you look at that and you go well is it really just higher income using uh, digital commerce channels absolutely not uh it's younger people and people looking for convenience for example if they have small children
2: okay so then i've I've got a, a a jumping off question from this which is more about you know just picking our heads up from this one year of data and looking looking across the industry so e-commerce growth has outpaced retail growth basically since amazon was founded on a on a, on a you know percentage cagr basis um, and in covid you know the first year of 2020 saw a massive bump and it seems like in 2022 there's been a little bit more reversion to the mean and e-commerce growth really hasn't you know outpaced retail growth by much um, depending on which which data you look at and so, a question is if I look at the penetration numbers that you're talking about, especially under 40, are we looking at a future where if commerce is ubiquitous online only versus just ubiquitous commerce, buy online, pick up up store, you know, like you, you phrase it as digital? Are we looking at a future where the, we should expect these digital channels to basically grow at the same rate as normal commerce because, because we've reached such high penetration rates? So basically, they're going to grow as sales grow rather than grow faster than sales grow because people are switching channels. But it, it, what, like, what, do you, what do you think? Does the data give you any hint as to how that's going to go?
1: The data doesn't, but the other trends we're watching is going to basically imply that we're going to have trouble separating those numbers in the future, right? So one of the things we're seeing in the retail space, uh, we have a separate study, which I won't go into here, but I think it was 90% of... Um, is it retailer, retailers or grocery retailers? I can't remember which are planning to change the front, front end of their stores to create more room for the back end, right? Because everybody has, they have to deal with all the operational complexity. Why is that important? If you watch the news, you see what is doing, you see what Walmart's doing, you see what Amazon's doing, they're bringing digital media into the physical store. So as we bring digital into the physical store, what's going to happen is I'm going to be walking around the store and I'm looking for Halloween candy that's gluten-free and allergy-free because of some kids in my neighborhood. I'm going to be using a digital interface to check that. I'm going to pull up my phone, take a look. It's going to show me the content. And because of that, what we call digital commerce is going to get very blended with physical commerce yeah. Yeah. and the media play. And we all see this, right? They're looking and going, well, if I'm this media growth that we're seeing retail media is exploding, if I can extend that into my physical store, which they're all planning to do, not all, but like the ones I'm mentioning, that's not only extra revenue for them, But that, again, drives like digital commerce component to physical. So I think to your question, I think what we're seeing here is, and and I saw it recently with Walmart's numbers that came out where, to your point, e-commerce growth year over year was twice what we were seeing in same source sales. I think that's less about true incremental growth and more about people continuing to take advantage of these conveniences. I think what we're going to see is it will plateau at some point. Physical is not going away, right? But it's going to have to level off at some point, and digital commerce will be—it's already material, but it's going to reach a level where effectively it just blends with physical, and we stop talking about them as two separate, um, almost like institutions, is what we almost—if you think about it—that's the way it was set up often in many companies.
0: Yeah, I was yeah. picking. Yeah, the the, the 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 that's what I was picking up earlier when you were trying to sort of, in a way, almost struggling to define it because it's now yeah. almost becoming. It really is becoming just one thing, and yet the organizations are not set up uh, in process or, or even in people in the organization to th- think about it in that way and to sort of maximize value across the whole business rather than sort of these narrow silos. And so part of that must be, you, you'd you mentioned it earlier about it becoming a C-suite conversation. You talk to mm-hmm. CEOs across the commerce industry all the time. Like, what are you seeing of the impact of this new sort of ubiquity on their overall strategy?
1: Yeah, it's it, it's interesting to bring this up. Um, so it has it's become a CEO topic, which I think surprised a lot of us, right? Um, we we're fortunate enough to have those relationships or go in. It's interesting because it went from being a CEO topic as commerce as a function and instead being more like commerce is this disruption to my industry and the risk of my business shareholder value. And that's why it's become the C-suite level. And probably the easiest way to explain it's really not even in the data. And don't get me wrong. What's really important in this data about it being ubiquitous is it used to be that not all the division presidents, for example, were worried about this. Well, now they all have to worry about it and it's at risk. It's a simple story that often uh, we talk about with the CEOs, where we say, let's say, for example, you sell diapers, right? Uh, we kind of point out and go, hey, digital commerce is great, but Walmart launching curbside didn't create more parents, more uh, babies or more baby poop. So you're not selling more diapers because of curbside, right? It's just the reality. Of what it, it sounds silly, but it's such a practical thing to keep in mind is your market is what your market is. Now, if you can find a way to create a new occasion on cur- curbside shopping, awesome at the end of the day, your market, we're not having more consumers because of this. What we've done is created more convenience for consumers. I can now go buy that through Walmart by walking through the store. I can do curbside. Instacart can pick it up from Walmart. All three of those are the same local Walmart, or I can have Walmart ship it to me direct. More convenience means more costs for the, the businesses. And we saw something similar with financial services companies, you know, a few decades back with ATM machines thinking that they were gonna replace everything when in fact they were just incremental costs for the same fees and convenience so what a lot of these ceos have realized is well if my market's not growing my market size isn't and i have to manage multiple channels to sell sell the same products Well, one my costs are going up do i actually know what those costs are and to your point they weren't built for this right so they haven't actually gone and baselined what my cost is and just as importantly what do I project it to be? Because we're not in a stable state right now. Everyone's still going through a transitional phase. So that becomes a really important thing for a CEO from a shareholder value perspective. And two, they grew up in a world that has dramatically changed in very short order, which means their business model, the way their customer organization is, the way their commerce organization, it wasn't designed for this. And they've been iterating, surviving through that COVID you know, rapid transition. And now they're taking a step back going, okay, that, that was good. That salvaged me. And we did a great job with it. But is it the right model for the future? And most of them are realizing it's not. And it could put their business at risk if they don't fix it. So in multiple cases, that conversation has led to, cool, I need you to come to the ELT, spend two hours with all my division presidents, all my C-suite, because usually the CFOs in that initial discussion with me. And they all see it and they go, OK, uh, this is now our top priority that we got to solve. And it flows from everything from uh, retail media to product pack architecture to supply... But commerce is the driving force. So that gets back to that ubiquitous thing. It's no longer something can, uh, people can ignore. And it reminds me of what we saw with retail when Amazon started disrupting it. You know, It moved from, uh, sorry for the ramble here, but this is really important. I always call it the from the A priority to the priority. Amazon was a priority for retail you know, 15 years ago. They would talk about it in board meetings, but it was never the priority. So they would talk about it, but they didn't act on it. And then it got to a point where some of them started to actually feel the risk and we know some of them died because of it. CPGs seem to have recognized and learned from that lesson. They've rapidly moved digital commerce from being a priority to the priority. It is a C-suite topic. It is a board level topic. That's surprising given some of our our people going, wow, I can't believe the board talks about this. And you're like, absolutely, I have no choice anymore. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. I think that's why we've seen this elevate so fast it's not just the data, it's the practicality of
0: it. Yeah, Rob and I were talking about this literally today, about sort of, if you think about the past number of years, partly due to COVID, but just it was the trend where sort of consumers are in charge, and that became the thing to respond to. They've changed their behaviors, you've got to catch up. Now it feels like the PL is in charge again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, they've had their way. We've we've innovated, and and rightly so in a in a very pressured time. And now's the a time to step back and sort of rationalize the business and and what is the experience the consumer needs to be able to find, uh, you know, uh, decide to buy, and then have the right experience to actually get their product in their hands successfully in a way that the business can afford. Um, and that that experience is going to be you know challenging to to rationalize at this point in the in the structure.
1: yeah, I totally agree. And I love the point about it being p and l led again because that's what was protecting this from being the priority at first, and now it's gotten to a point of material impact, losing share, margin dilution where they're saying, I've got to get the right model to protect my business longer term. so
2: I, I want to get a little into the cost focus on the. Um, in, in the C-suite right now, um, one of the one of the big topics that I've heard people discuss in the last few years is how exactly you fund retail media. Right? Is it mm-hmm. is it a net new line item? Is it just an additional cost of doing business? You know, do you move money over from, you know, brand marketing? P and P and G CMO a few years ago had a big, you know, uh, brouhaha around cutting a bunch of uh, TV ad spend and basically shifting it over to various digital channels. Um, so and, correct me if i'm reading into this a little bit wrong but at least part of what you're saying is some of this stuff is just it's more expensive to do business in this sort of seamless ubiquitous commerce multi-channel world than it used to be retail media is one of those additional costs and you know that's just, that just is what it is i mean that's and i mean given the the expense of these things i mean i can i can see why it goes up to the board level for these companies is that a fair statement, or or am I am I missing something? Well, you're
1: spot on. I mean, if the market size isn't growing and your costs are going up, you got to. And let's be honest, we know retail media is going up because we're seeing the numbers coming from the retailers talking about how fast it's growing. Huge not incremental budget for it, and it's not like their trade dollars can all of a sudden just magically go away and they can refund it for that because they still got to run their trade business. So, it gets back to a basic principle of: Do you even know what you're spending? Are you optimizing that return? Because again, to your point, it's not a bigger market. In fact, in many ways, it's a more competitive market because what we've seen, what Amazon really um, enabled, and I would say Walmart is now doing as well, is they've democratized brand building and route to market. I could today go invent a new product in my garage and start selling it on Amazon. And I could be right there competing with the biggest brands in the world. That, That couldn't happen 20 years ago. That's usually a joke I make. I'm going 20 years ago, if I bought a product online and ate it, from a company I never heard of, because a thousand strangers said it tasted good, I just sound like a crazy person. <laughs> and that is the yeah. world we live in today. I thought of it that way, yeah. It and, it's, and it's not because of ratings and reviews as much as we want to believe it is. It's because when we look at the product pages and the brand storefronts, these companies are doing a phenomenal job building a brand experience that competes with these other brands. So when you ask, like, does it matter? Like, absolutely. Because what's happening is it used to be those smaller brands were nipping at the heels of the bigger brands. But this democratization of it has actually given them way more power and it's good in a lot of different ways, but it means that it's going to push the bigger brands to also elevate what they're spending in these channels to maintain share or to claw some of it back.
2: Yeah. there's a data from Benedict Evans, who's an analyst out of the UK and and I, I think this is UK specific data, but the US data isn't far off where if you look at the brands that are purchased in a physical store location, 75% seventy five percent of the brands tend to be what we would describe as big brands. Mm-hmm. But if you look at brands that are purchased in a in an online peer play, um only thirty percent of them are what you would describe as big brands. And that's I mean, that's just a, a straight up market share trade on okay. uh, on on channel by channel.
1: That, that, I love that data point because in many ways that's what we're seeing too, is the route to market and like building a new brand is different. because you can go on Amazon, build up credibility then move your way onto walmart.com and then eventually move onto their shelves. And we are seeing that, right? They they build that leverage, they build the loyalty and they're actually taking a different route versus I'm going to wait six months to a year to convince Walmart to move me from a regional to whatever. There is other routes now in the market to compete.
2: There, you know, there's another aspect of this cost um, conversation, not to linger too long on it, but um, I'd imagine that if you're adding costs related to the channels that, your report highlights are growing so dramatically over the last few years. The costs tend to be much more variable and, and unpredictable compared to traditional retail costs. So even with, you know, with with trade and whatnot, um, brand marketing, trade marketing, you're you're signing up fronts. You're you know doing quarterly or annual reviews with your partner. I mean, there's like a pace to it. Whereas online retail media spend. At least now, at the state of maturity that it's in, appears to be much more volatile, and I can't imagine that you know when, once it becomes a large enough line item on your budget, um, that's got to be stressful for CFOs to to try to try to manage. I mean, is the volatility of the cost relating to these new channels something that you're hearing come up in the in the C-suite at this point, or is it, uh, is it still a small enough percentage of the of the pie that it's, um, it's not yet stressing them out?
1: I don't think they have enough visibility into it. And it's a great point. It's retail media. It's all the content production costs, both working and non-working dollars. It was a big thing about a year ago. We started seeing a lot of companies popping up saying, I need to get my hands around this. And they would say, well, I've got my numbers. And like, okay, okay, do you have your like non-working dollars? All the people working on this to, before it even hits the... To, oh, we hadn't even thought about that. right? So there's all these little hidden costs, all your case management costs, your vendor setup. There are things that are sometimes not visible. And so when you get to the C-suite, this is the first time they start to see it and realize, "Oh my God, this is happening," and it's kind of hidden from me. And so that's one of the things everyone's trying to get to is, "Can you help me baseline what the cost is for each channel so I can start thinking about this the right way and to start getting the costs under control?" Because to your point, there is a lot of variability, especially when you don't have visibility into what you're even spending. You know, it's all over the place. So,
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah, man, we we could spend a long time on this. Let's let's <laughs> zoom out. Let's zoom out. Zoom back yeah. out here. Um, uh, when, when you're talking about, you know, commerce being ubiquitous, and you're talking about how consumers seamlessly buy across tons of channels, you had specific data on um, grocery buying habits and subscription buying habits that I thought was fascinating too. Because it didn't—I mean, this might be because I'm, you know, one of the older demographics on the list, but it doesn't jive with how I spend money online. And but the, but the data shows that a ton of people are spending money online and. In certain ways, so um, I, I I wanted to dig into some of those the, some of those data and, and highlight it. Um, so yeah, commerce is seamless and sticky. Can you can you give a high give highlights and overviews for the for the audience?
1: Yeah, and a little context here too, because we started the sticky question last year because we wanted to understand there was a lot of questions about subscriptions, right? And that's usually where everybody's brain goes through. And we were going subscriptions are important, but so are reordering features. If I use last week's grocery list to populate this week. Um, that's very different from walking to a physical store because I walk through an aisle. I see competitor products, display ads, new product launches, coupons. And then all of a sudden I'm doing, oh, I'm just going to order the thing I got last week. There's it, 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 there's a power to it of stickiness. It's almost like a it's a non-committed subscription model, right? And that's whether you're using buy again features on Amazon, your previous grocery list, your previous restaurant order, right? Because we even look at like food and beverage from the restaurant side, Um and so a couple of things on this one, I'll start with stickiness. That's that piece, right? Seamless we did is just this year. So I'll, I'll treat that one a little separately. On sticky, what's interesting is you see that under 40 Gen X over 50, you know, 57 up kind of step again. So um, the under 40 group, 69% of people under 40 are using stored lists uh, for reordering. That's amazing. 69%. That's, that's across the board, okay? And, and I'll talk about some of the categories, where we see it's the strongest. 50% of people under forty are using subscriptions for some category or another. So there's this familiarity that's already building. Now, we watched that drop about 10% going to the, the Gen X, and we see a drop a little bit uh, more than 10%, believe it or not, when you get to um, the 57 and over. But what's important there is that's what you see. And what's interesting is where we saw like – Commerce being ubiquitous and curbside being really driven by, especially like babies in the house and stuff. You see the preteen family actually being higher here. Um, and I guarantee you having a I've got a teen and a preteen I'm trying to figure out what the hell, because they're at a point now where they're like <laughs> they have specific requirements for the food they eat and the grocery <laughs> right and the size. Of, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I don't want to remember that. I'll just reorder what they got last time. I think that's a factor in this. Um, And this is the first time we also see income being a factor. So when we start seeing the features, that's when we see the higher income using this stuff, uh, starting to be a a differentiator. But I I do think this is really important because it is truly sticky, whether you're using subscriptions or a reordering list. If you're in the basket, it's gold, right? Because it's for the first time we can start to get to where we can measure lifetime value and understand like how long do they stay in the basket when we put in it, which we couldn't see before. Uh, And two, if you're not in the basket and your competitor is, it means out of stocks become critical to you. Your competitor's out of stock. I can see that at a store level. I better act on it in real time. I better go get it because I know whoever gets in that basket is likely to reorder next time, right? Um,
0: and Jared, do you see that that big brands have an advantage there? You know, we were talking earlier about digitally native. Like in this in this sort of stuff, are they winning that
1: battle to be on the repeat list? I love that question. We did not ask that. I do think it's a really important question to know who is winning that battle the most. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't even speculate. It's a really interesting thing because I think from what we're seeing, it is very much a convenience factor, less so than a brand factor. But I do think you're right. I think it's probably driven by I need to get the exact same thing. Um,
0: When I saw a lot of the behavior that you were calling out in the survey was that uh, consumers, uh, In varying percentages, when they think of an item that they want, they're immediately adding it to their shopping list or they're ordering it right then to get it right then, which I thought is super interesting. And I uh, yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that trend because I think it's yeah, that
1: seamlessness, I I think is really interesting. That was the new question this year that we wanted to ask. We started realizing that, you know, historically people would create a grocery list, then there was digital grocery lists. And then we start saying, how many people are just putting something in a basket the moment they realize they have any? And this one is specific to grocery. We we intentionally pick grocery. Normally, we were asking across every category. This one, we're like, no, we're just going to ask this for grocery items. What do you do? Do you put it on a list? Do you put it on a digital list? Do you put it in a basket to buy, or do you just buy it right, like buy it immediately, right? And here's where it gets interesting. Um, again, the under forty group, people who are putting the basket or, or listen basket or buying immediately. 45%, in fact, 26% of that under 40 just bite the moment they see they have a need, right? So they're walking through, and this has been kind of a joke internally. I mean, you're waiting for the kid to come out from school. You realize you have a need. You're sitting in the bathroom. I hate to admit it, but there may have, really have a need. And, and the point of it is, is wherever you're at in your life, it's become seamless. It's almost transparent. And that's what's unique about commerce that it's changing is commerce used to be, I go to a store, I go to a register, someone has, and then we got sell, check out, we seen this is the next evolution where commerce is just seamless as part of our life. You might just be in another room picking up something and realizing, oh, kid's out of deodorant. What do you do? Are you buying it immediately? You may be buying it immediately or putting in the basket immediately. And there's a lot of power in that, which gets back to that stickiness thing of saying, whether you're a retailer or a package brand, you wanna make it as easy as possible for that to be seamless. Because if you make it difficult, people are going to lean towards that convenience. So it's
2: it's so. interesting if if I think about like the era of Madison Avenue brand building and competition, I think about the, you know, recent Trout book the 22 immutable laws of marketing and they have examples like Listerine versus Scope. Listerine's number 1, Scope comes out with an ad campaign that basically says Listerine tastes terrible, don't you want your <laughs> mouthwash to taste good? And, you know, you see Scope sales start spiking. Listerine fights back with, yeah, of course it tastes terrible because it works. You know, what medicine have you ever taken that tastes any good? And then so, you know, and so there's this sort of back and forth messaging that happens. You see it with, you know, Pepsi versus Coke and um, and all that. And what's, what's interesting about the implications of the stickiness is the competition becomes a lot more about, you know, on the ground winning that battle to be in the lists. On almost a consumer by consumer basis. I mean, I can almost see guerrilla warf- warfare tactics, like your Coke. You go into the local grocery store and you just buy all the Pepsi, so force it out of stock, and then run a co- you know local conquesting campaign because nobody can buy it, right? I mean, maybe Coke and Pepsi are not a, not the best possible example, but you can imagine you know Pampers versus Huggies or or whatever it is. Um, it's maybe cheap dollars to out of stock a store if it means that you can change you can get on the the default list for consumers for the next 10 months or 12 months or whatever it's interesting wow. it's interesting like what's the what's the battleground between brands in this world where 50% of purchases in grocery are coming from a list for under 40 people it's 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 a different kind of competitive dynamic right
1: no absolutely in fact i i i i i find this quite I don't know what's the right word for it. I want to use the word obscene, but it's a little too much. But there is retailers that allow you to advertise your product on a competitor's page when they're out of stock, right? That's that's equivalent to being like, oh, you're in the, you know a uh, old school uh, downtown you know retail area, and you see that your competitor is out of stock, and you walk over and put a sell sign. You're like, hey, we have inventory across the street, and you get to put it right on their window. You're like, you can't. Do- well, I guess you can do that. Yeah. But there's this. I think what's interesting to me, and it's it reminds me a little bit what we see with. Um, and like financial management where we started seeing people you know literally working the the edges of stuff across like uh currency exchanges and trying to you know, work off those pennies and how fast it would add up and you look at this and go what was really interesting about covid is we started to get more accurate data at a store level that was digitized because they had to because they had to know if the inventory was in stock they had to know the assortment they had to know the pricing all i mean i literally can look up a product right now at the walmart around the corner from me well if I'm a brand that competes with that other brand and I see they're out of stock at 250 Walmarts around the US and I can act fast enough, that's a big question mark. Mm-hmm. Then I get to what you're getting at, Rob. It's like, it's a warfare thing at a much more micro level. If I can act quick enough to act on it, which means I gotta be ahead of it, right? I gotta be planning for this kind of stuff. And systematically I gotta be able to act on it. And we do see there's some stuff. In fact, the company required the stable. Had some tools for that kind of things. We're seeing it all over the place. Everybody's starting to figure this out. Going, wow! But if you go two years ahead of now, I think it's a massive play um, because again, that whole stickiness piece, the seamless piece of going the moment someone has a need, they want to solve that need. If I can solve it for them, holy cow, the value of that is substantial.
0: So. And I would imagine the kind of the big deal for Accenture here is that that will require. Massive shifts in people, process, and and technology to make that because the only way that you can respond that quickly if a lot of it's automated. And I totally agree. It's, it's a and that data is going back and forth between brands and retailers at speed so that you can respond in
1: real time. It's a great point. I my my phrasing is a little overly selfy to be honest, but is you got to be <laughs> as digital on the inside as you are on the outside. Yeah. Right. So you're building all these big front ends, but if the back end of how you do all this, if your supply chain system isn't talking to marketing and your supply chain is not talking to retail media platforms, then you're expecting people, which you have talent shortage issues, you got legacy operating model. If the systems can't do some of this on your behalf, you're really going to be held back. And so I do agree with you. I think it's getting the systems to start talking to each other, data, intelligence, cloud, whatever it takes so that you can act in real time. If not, and the competitor does, you're at a huge risk there. So,
0: so um, you've been talking a lot, Jared, I mean, for years now, really, but but even more so intensely with this new data of the importance of viewing these channels as not only performance marketing channels, but brand building channels. Right. And, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about the data from this research that's sort of supporting that effort.
1: Yeah. So we, we uh, yeah, this is, this is one of the questions we've asked for four years. And it's funny because we used to do this thing. Uh, there's a person I worked with. He actually did one of the keynotes for you all uh, some years back. And it was kind of fun. It was almost like a stand up routine. So we get everybody we'd say, okay, who's bought a name brand product on, um, our, on Amazon in the last three months. And just about everybody's hands would go and uh, keep your hands up can you remember anything about the product page, imagery, description, whatever, keep your hands up. They'd all keep their hands up. And then we'd say, okay, can you recall a TV ad associated with that product and everyone's hands would come down and they'd all start laughing. And we're like, okay, we're on to something here. So we're going to start tracking this from here on out. And so we've, it, it's been really interesting to watch. So the first year we did this was 2019 and about 81% of people had recall of product pages and we intentionally picked Amazon. And by the way, for the 13 countries, there was two things we would do. One, we would always make sure to use the leading marketplace, which gets kind of interesting. Because if you're in, you know, Brazil, it's pretty obvious. You know, UK, it's obvious. You get to Indonesia, it gets a little more complicated because they don't have dominant players with shopee Lasada, and stuff like that. Then you get to also make sure they understand what we buy name by product. So we always work with our teams around the globe to make sure that not only is the right marketplace, but we're making sure they understand the question. And the numbers are always 80 plus. U.S. was 81% 20, uh, 2019 is 84% today. So wow. 84% of people have recalled that. And it makes sense, right? Because we go to those product pages. We're trying to make a decision. That was the mistake that people were making three or four years ago. And we started running experiments with this because clients were curious. Does it make a difference? And what we found is it can make a substantial difference. If the content is there, they thought, why put a video on there? People aren't going to watch a the video. They know what they're going to buy. And in fact, the videos drove up not only conversions, but time on page dramatically so then when you ask the recall of the tv ads today it's 30 percent. so it's 84 versus 30. what's interesting is that number's actually come up and it's because tv ads mean so many more things now so four years later with all the streaming services many of them having you know uh the advertisement kind of layered into it with uh, the stuff that's there like hulu and paramount and stuff we've seen that number come up and, and in fact that number is pretty consistently in the 20s and low 30s around the globe, except in markets where there's not streaming services predominant. And that's that's the big, that's what we've seen as the big thing. And it's not to say that TV ads are bad or even you know video streaming ads. They're absolutely needed. What we were trying to point out was, are your brand teams even thinking about this as a brand channel? And what we we're finding is they weren't too often the commerce teams were getting leftover assets because they built all the assets for um, social and for TV and for other streaming stuff. And they didn't even think of commerce and realize that not only is commerce a brand building channel, it's a unique brand building channel. The things you can do in these channels is so powerful versus what you can do in some of the other ones. It's not only a shame not to build content for it, you should be building creative experiences for it. And so for example, you know, Cams now has an award just for creative for commerce. I think we're going to see a dramatic growth in this but i think it's going to be driven from the fact that flat out this is where consumers are learning about brands and products on a regular basis
2: yeah i mean for it's kind of interesting right it's like the classic rule for brand building is it's
1: number of impressions
2: and reach and 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 things like that um and so you see from like the 50s you'll the lines like you have to see a brand seven times before you'll be able to actively recall it. And, you know, all those old studies, um, you know, you would think then the, from a first principles basis, if you're spending brand dollars, you would stack rank by eyeballs and impressions, all of the places that you could spend brand dollars on. And then you would, you know, you would allocate creative resources according, you know, in some rough accordance to, to that. Right. And, uh, I remember the I argued in 2016, I was at one of the top 10 CPG companies and I was saying, you know, how many people have gone to your, you know, cpg.com versus how many people have seen your latest TV commercial, you know, and I, and I had, you know, Nielsen penetration versus streaming data. And in 2016, you really only had Hulu as an advertising um, streaming service. And then, then I, then I, then I showed um, estimates on Amazon product detail page views. And, you know, the point was similar to what you were making, which is like, how much money are you spending on creative on this product detail page, which is dramatically outpacing the viewership of the TV versus, it's not, it's not like you don't want to do TV, but you sort of like invest your brand dollars in proportion to the viewing. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I just love the data from your report that backs up that the, not only are these product detail pages viewed a lot, but people are recalling information on them. And and recalling them more frequently than they're recalling the TV. I mean, it's 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 just it's just incredible data. I mean, we, we've we've uh, we've come a long way in the last five or ten years.
1: It's a, a substantial difference, and I know you guys have seen it, but I think it's worth bringing it up. But the reason we would show the quote unquote the famous George video, we have this video, you know, with George Clooney, and it shows like all this great work he does, in the uh, TV ads and print advertising, and even in the stores they have things in George. And then we would show how like Nespresso wasn't using it in commerce. And the big joke in the line was, well, where the hell is George? We didn't use the word hell. It was a little bit. <laughs> I where remember the word. I, I love the, I love the, the <laughs> where's George. But Maybe it really you resonated is. for people because then they would go and say, that's a really good point. How the hell are we leaving him out of this channel? And part of it was because organically, digital commerce grew up in the sales channel, which makes sense. But it's also a brand building channel and kind of showed that there was an operating model disconnect because for God's sakes, this is a channel where consumers are at. Why isn't brand leaning in and making sure all your best assets, not just spokespeople, but your corporate social responsibility efforts, the awards you win, the sustainability efforts you have, the great ingredients. Because as we were talking earlier about how small brands are able to level the playing field, they do do that. They do a phenomenal job of talking about their sustainability efforts and small batch processing and organic ingredients. And they really know how to play to their audience and big brands, unfortunately, because their best people aren't thinking about this channel, are missing it. So, and I think that's true for all levels, but I just think smaller brands are much stronger at this than bigger brands.
0: Jared, I just want to, you know, um, close out by saying th- this I'm going to view this podcast episode as kind of one of the moments of shifting for me and thinking about what is this next decade of commerce going to be like. Because through this consumer data, we really are seeing that sort of from age of the consumer to age of the PL, and that the consumers are sort of telling us what they need. And now the need for the business to do that people process technology shift over the next number of years to be sure they're set up to do all of this at scale and win in a profitable way. And and that's, I think it is coming out of this period of, of COVID and massive shifts, digital shelf being the only shelf, it becoming a lot, you know, now is the moment where I will I will be thinking about this is where the ship really needed to start to turn. Um, so thank you so much for, for kind of bringing this to life to us. Because sometimes consumer research can sort of be, oh, look at that. Isn't that pretty? We've got some numbers. Yeah. This is, you've really brought it to life in terms of how it's translating into the C-suite. And I think that's a particular moment to pay attention to.
1: No, I, I feel exact. And I love what you said about winning in a profitable way. I think that's where we're seeing the pivot is it went from, I've got to survive and win in this channel, which some are doing well and some aren't. But all of them are realizing I need to win long-term, which means I need to win profitable share, not just share. And I, and I think that's a really good point.
0: Thanks, Jared. It's just been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you for sharing this with us.
1: My pleasure. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks again to Jared for the wake up call. We'll be talking more about all this over the next year at the DSI. So don't be shy. Go to digitalshelfinstitute.org to become a member and be in on the conversation. Thanks for being part of our community.